0: So
1: Good morning. Again, it's great to see everybody. Welcome to Seacoast Church. If I haven't met you yet, my name's Josh Surratt and I serve as a lead pastor here at the church, and I'm excited. This uh, weekend's gonna be a little bit different, uh, but I will warn you that uh, we're less than 24 hours from getting off of a plane from Israel, uh, so a bit jet lagged. There's no telling what might happen, and so just need, need a little grace on that, uh, but what we did, we took about 50 people from the church to Israel. We got back yesterday, and man, it was an incredible trip, and I'm sure that we'll be processing that with you and sharing some of those stories and what God showed us over the next couple of weeks, but I do wanna tell you one story as we get started. We're, we're continuing our series this weekend called So Will I, and uh, the the idea is that we're we're talking about worship, and what does worship look like, and this'll be week four. Uh, Next week, we'll finish the series. Darren Patrick, who is uh, new to our team, teaching pastor, you've heard him a couple of times, he's gonna be with us next weekend to conclude this series, but this weekend, we're gonna do a panel, but before we jump into it, I wanted to tell you a story that happened in Israel. Uh, We'd gone to, up by the Sea of Galilee, and our guide is a guy by the name of Mark Turnage, and he's great, we love, him, He always does an incredible job. And he's been telling me for a couple of years that he thinks that he knows where the ancient city of Bethsaida is. It's actually pronounced Bethsaida in southern English, but he says Bethsaida because he's showing off. It's Hebrew. But uh, you may remember Bethsaida as the, um, it's the birthplace of Andrew and Peter. It's a fishing village. Jesus did a lot of ministry up there. And there's a couple of places that people have wondered if that was where it was, or these locations, or where that city was. But they haven't really confirmed it. Mark thinks he knows where it is, and so he took us to this site that they've just recently begun to excavate. And what he told us is that really, if they would find a synagogue at this site, that it would really validate that it's a big enough town, that it could be this place, and they're you know, trying to raise money to dig there and all this stuff. So he brings us to the site and go through some dirt roads, and we get, get there, and we're checking it out. And I you know, was listening to him, but then I was kind of wandering around. I, you know, I wanted to ex- discover something, you know, I got a little Indiana Jones in me, and I uh, <laughs> wanted to figure, you know, find some things, and so I was walking around, and Tara Banks uh, was also kind of walking around exploring, and Tara, our worship pastor, uh, grabs me and she says, I wonder what that rock is, did you see that? And she points out this, this kind of big stone, and uh, <laughs> it was flipped upside down, And uh, it was muddy and dirty and all this stuff. It was in a big pile of rubble uh, that had been there for hundreds of years. And so I went over and started to kind of mess with it a little bit. And after Mark was done doing his tour guide stuff, which I hadn't been paying attention to, he said, does anybody have any questions? I said, yes, I do in fact have a question. What is this lion over there? Because it had had, like etching of a lion on it. And he goes, what are you talking about? I said, this big rock with a lion on it, what is this all about? Where do you think that's from? And he kind of walks over and looks at it and he's like, oh my goodness, this is, this is a big deal. And so there was an archeologist that was with us and he comes over and we begin to dig this thing out and we, it took three or four of us to flip it over uh, upside down, cleaned it off, and sure enough, we found this huge stone. I wanna show it to you. This is what Tara, our worship leader, discovered. Um, and it, it's a lioness. And we knew it was something, a big deal, because normally something like this Uh, Our archeologist was saying that they normally find stuff like this in hundreds of pieces, and they have to kind of piece it together to figure out what it is. So that in and of itself was amazing. But then the, the main archeologist for this site came over, dropped everything he was doing, came over, and they brought this crane and took it to some place to study it more, and what they found out is that this in fact is from about the fifth or sixth century, so we're talking about 1500 plus years old, and in fact, it's a piece of a synagogue. It's proof that there was a synagogue on this land, and so we discovered the ancient town of Sida. you know, not a bad trip. So, love to uh, love to invite you to come back to Israel on future trips, who knows what we might find, but, but the reason that I shared that with you is, as we moved on from that site, and went on to several others, I feel like the Lord spoke to me, uh, and I've been following God now for 20 years, this December. Uh, I was 18 years old, now I'm 38. So I've been following God for more years than I wasn't and it's tempting when you've been a christian for a long time and You kind of have been in church for a long time to to start going through the motions Maybe even to start to believe that that you've discovered all that there is To discover about God and I feel like God spoke to me and I think he wants to say the same thing to you Which is that you have not even scratched the surface of what I had for you If you'll continue to search if you'll continue to lean in I want to show you things that there's more I want to show you and if this rock could have sat for 1,500 plus years in this spot where who knows how many hundreds of people have walked around and been around it, and yet it's still new things are being discovered in this land, how much more so about our great God. And so as we talk about worship this weekend, as we hear from a panel, I wanna invite you to listen as if God may have something brand new that he wants to uncover for you. It could be revolutionary in your life. Normally one of us gets up for 30 minutes or so and shares, but I brought some friends. We knew when we were talking about this series that we wanted to uh, do a format where five of us are gonna share, five of these guys are gonna share uh, for about 35 minutes each, so we'll be done by about six o'clock tonight. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Uh, Five minutes each, so five on five. Give each of them five minutes to bring their perspective and they're gonna answer this question. Why, Why will I worship? Why do I worship? Why, why do I worship? And so as they do, you know, it's a different format. Uh, and so you're probably not gonna remember everything that gets said, but I wanna encourage you to lean in that maybe there's one or two or three things that God might speak through these men and women that would, that would maybe change your life and, and, and bless you in a powerful way. And so each of these five are part of our team at Seacoast, but here's the deal, none of them their day, none of them have a day job that uh, has them preaching and teaching from a platform like this. And so a lot of them sing and some of them uh, research. In fact, the joke is that three worship leaders, a researcher and an administrative assistant walk into a bar and uh, actually, actually they're, they're coming into a church and I believe God's gonna use them to share Uh, with you in some cool ways. And so we've got, I'll introduce our panel. We have Tara Banks, who is archaeologist as well as worship pastor here at Seacoast. Um, We've got Jack Hoy, who Jack is a researcher. He's on our communications team, does a lot of writing. Uh, In fact, most of the good things that dad says around here, Jack probably fed him those lines. And so uh, great guy, been around for a long time. Brandon Lake uh, is also one of our worship pastor's here at Seacoast and uh, does a great job leading here. He's been at many of our campuses as well. We've got Lynn Stroy, who is our uh, campus administrative assistant here at Mount Pleasant. She actually started at the Irmo campus as a children's ministry director, and uh, she kinda makes the engines run here in Mount Pleasant, and God's got just a very cool perspective that she's gonna bring. And then Nate Davis is our worship pastor here for the Mount Pleasant campus, and um, all of them have, I believe, a word from God for us, and so I want you to lean in. If they say something and you think it was supposed to be funny, just laugh. Laugh really loud. Uh, If they say something profound, you know, give them an amen and and cheer them on, and, and, and I believe you're gonna be blessed. So would you give it up for our panel as Tara kicks us off?
0: Hey, good morning. Yeah, like Josh said, um, I am a little bit jet lagged, which is why they probably let me go first so that they can clean up all the mess on the backside. Um, But this morning, I wanna share with you why I worship. I worship because it's my job. It is my job, but it is also your job. I worship because it was what I was created to do, and it's what you are created to do. Long before I was a part of the worship ministry at Seacoast in a staff capacity, I knew that worship was gonna be a foundational part of my life. I remember in the early 90s attending a worship conference and um, having some people gather around me who I did not know and they began to pray over me and call things out in my life that up until that point had just been quiet secret conversations between me and the Lord. And they began to pray things over me like pastor and leader and anointed for worship. And hearing those things really caused courage to rise up in my heart to actually live out what I knew in my heart that I was created to do. And although I do sense his joy when I have the opportunity to stand here and lead worship and sing songs, I am learning that there are other things that are worship as well. And I can sense his presence in those things too. Things like changing diapers and doing a load of laundry and teaching in a first grade classroom. It's just the day to day, whatever is in my hand at the moment kind of things. It's all worship and if I let him use it, all the normal can express gratitude for a life that he's given me as I give it right back to him. So I'm gonna take you to the beginning at the creation to an account in Genesis that's helped me understand what worship is all about off the platform and understand why I know that we are all created to worship. Genesis 2.7 says, one day the eternal God scooped dirt out of the ground, sculpted it into the shape we call human, breathed the breath that gives life into the nostrils of the human, and the human became a living soul. Every day since that moment, man has been breathing back to God the breath that he breathed in us. Our very living is meant to be an act of worship. So we sing this song. It's His breath in our lungs, so we pour out our praise to you only. And the key word there is that little word, so, because it means that we have to respond. God breathed into us, so our response is spending all the breaths after that first one, breathing back to the one who created it. Romans 12, one in the message puts it like this. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life and place it before God as an offering. You're sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life. There is no greater way that we can glorify the Lord, which is just really a fancy way of saying making him bigger, than to do the things that he created us to do, which is to worship him with our lives. And in doing so, we are showing a world that needs him so desperately what it looks like when we choose to obey him in the way that we were created, which is to worship, to breathe back. First Corinthians 12, Paul talks about how the physical body works and how that compares to us as believers. That just as a physical body needs an eye and an ear and a hand, and we can't all be a body full of elbows, the body of Christ also needs all the parts, that's us, to fulfill God's kingdom right here on earth. Verse 18 reads, this is where God comes in. God has meticulously put this body together where he places each part to perform the exact function that he wanted. There are eight billion people on earth and he sees your heart in eight billion different ways. Your specific arrangement of gifts and talents and expression of those plus your DNA is unique to you alone. There is no one on the planet at this time that has that. No one can worship and make God bigger in this world like you can. And no one can worship and make God bigger in the world for you. Only you can worship God the way that you can. And according to verse 18, if you don't use those gifts that he's given you to glorify him, it's almost as if there's a little gap in the kingdom where your specific gifts are supposed to be expressed. It's his breath in my lungs, and it's my job to breathe it right back to him in only the way that I can. Backing up, verse seven says, each believer has received a gift that manifests the Spirit's power and presence, and that gift is given for the good of the whole community. So it's actually our responsibility as well as a kingdom need for us to operate and utilize all of our gifts in the kingdom, not to benefit ourselves, but to benefit the rest of the kingdom, which is each other. So, if that's the case, we have absolutely no need to compare ourselves to each other. Isn't that amazing? All we have to do is breathe our lives back as worship in only the way that we can and have been created to do. It is the ultimate you be you in the best way possible. So practically, what does that look like? In your work, you're created to worship with every creative idea and plan. Students, you're created to worship as you study and learn. Parents, you're created to worship as you guide your children, your families. Seacoast, you were created to worship right here as we gather together with a holy roar that shows the world we still have breath. Let's join those who for thousands of years have breathed back their lives, seen and unseen, in grateful response to their creator and fulfill our purpose to worship. It's his breath in our lungs. How are you gonna breathe it back? All
2: right, thank you, Tara. Major archeological find, you get to go first. You're having yourself a week All right. So when I was a kid, my brother and I shared a room, and we had bunk beds. Now, bunk beds are just a way for parents to convince their kids that sharing a room is fun. (laughs) One year, we moved, and we each got our own room, and I took the top bunk. And what I did is I took my desk and my bookshelf, and I pushed them against the bed, and I turned them inward so that underneath the bed became my own personal fortress of knowledge and introversion. (laughs) And what I started doing was on the weekends, I would take my lunch and I would go upstairs, I would go into my cave, I would read, I would eat, I would be alone, and I was happy. (laughs) And then I realized, we can expand this franchise. There are three meals every day. That's two more times I could be by myself. (laughs) Parents were not on board with this plan. No, you cannot take your dinner into your room and eat alone. You need to eat with us because we are what? A family. A family. Do you remember hearing that growing up? Have you ever said that? Did some of you say it this morning to your children to explain to them why they have to come to church with you? (laughs) Not in Nashville. No, sir. In Nashville, children listen to their parents the first time. That's what I've heard. If you're a Christian, you're part of a family as well. And that family is called the church. Now, I know what you're thinking. Jack, does that include Brandon? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Yes, it does. (laughs) But I hear you. And frankly, I'm glad we're finally talking about this. (laughs) In all seriousness, though, family is kind of messy. Some of you, you hear me say that you're part of a family and you don't know how you feel about that. I love what Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his book, Life Together. He said, the church is not an ideal. It's a reality that we are privileged to participate in. The privilege in belonging to this family is not that we're striving towards an ideal. The privilege is to be in it as it is, not how we wish it was. Being in a family means something. It means we do things together. And in this family, the thing that we do together is worship. I worship because we are a family, because we are a family. It's always been that way. From the beginning, God's people, Israel, worshiped together as one family, one body, one community before God. From the moment the church came onto the scene, worshiping together was a part of their daily rhythm. Look at Acts 2.42. It says they were continually doing these things, day in, day out, they were together as a family. The final picture, the ultimate image of worship in Revelation is of people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue worshiping God together as one family. You know, Jack, you know, I, I like to get my journal and my Bible. I like to get out into nature and I like to be alone with God and that that's my worship and that's great. Do that. But, The thing is, the purpose of worship is not for us to be alone with God. The purpose of worship is for us to be together as a family. Some of us, uh, we don't get worship, maybe. So we get here a few minutes late on the weekend. Or uh, maybe we uh, are here, but we're checking our phones or we're checked out. Some of us see worship as an opportunity to uh, lose ourselves in this one-on-one intimate connection with God. But you know, the writer of Hebrews, he wanted to make sure that the church understood that this part of a rhythm was togetherness. And so he wrote in Hebrews 10:25. he said, don't forsake, don't neglect meeting together. As I know some of you are in the habit of doing, keep on meeting together, encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near, the day being the return of Jesus. See, in either direction, whether you check out or whether you lose yourself in the one on one connection, in either direction, uh, when worship becomes about ourselves at the expense of everyone else around us, we're missing something. Look, personally, I don't especially enjoy worship. I don't like some of the songs we sing, and it's a bit loud for me. Okay? <laughs> I don't know why I'm telling you I should be telling. It doesn't matter who I should be telling, it doesn't matter but I don't worship to enjoy myself, and I don't worship to lose myself. I worship to be with you. I worship to be with you, so that we can offer something to our dad together.
3: Amen, amen, so good. Y'all enjoying this so far? I got one question though. Is it the tattoos and skinny jeans? like The whole package? Hating on a brother, that's right. We'll work it out later. I'm, I'm excited to share something that God has put on my heart. There's something I've come to know about worship that's completely changed my life, and it's this. When we withhold nothing from God, God withholds nothing from us. When we withhold nothing from God, God withholds nothing from us. You can fill in your blank with this. I worship because worship brings blessing. Worship brings blessing, and we see this in this story that's commonly talked about in Genesis 22 with Abraham and Isaac. You may know a little bit about this story, but God comes to Abraham, and he says, I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac on the altar for me. I want you to murder your son for me. Anybody, thank God, would ever say that? I mean, that's absolutely absolutely ridiculous. Has God visited you and never asked you to sacrifice one of your kids? I don't think so. How many of you have wanted to from time to time, though? I feel your pain. But this is an absolutely ridiculous story. But God showed me something early on. It's if you want to see the miraculous, you've got to get comfortable with the ridiculous. I think sometimes in life, that's what God calls us to do, is completely surrender. And it feels ridiculous. But if you want to see the miraculous things of God, we've got to get comfortable with the ridiculous. And that's what Abraham does. He says, okay. And so he sets out on this journey that God said he would show him the place to make the sacrifice. So he takes servants with him, a donkey, everything that he would need to make the sacrifice, including Isaac, and they set out on this journey to find this place. Then three days later, Abraham sees the spot, and he says the craziest thing, and I just, just, this just popped out to me in the story. He, he tells his servants, you stay here with the donkey while the boy and I go to worship. This is a father who's thinking through three days, I'm gonna have to give up my son. Isaac is the representation of God's blessing in Abraham's life. He's waited a long time for this son, and he's thinking, I've got to give him give him up. And what does he call it? He calls it worship. Out of all things, he calls it worship. And I think it's because he knows that worship is sacrifice, that worship is surrender. Isaac's probably freaking out by now. And so they, they, they keep going up and Isaac actually looks at his dad and he says, yo, dad, you know, you and I are the only ones here. Where is the sacrifice? Where's the sheep? And Abraham says, don't worry, son. God will provide the sacrifice. So they continue up. Abraham builds the altar takes the wood, he takes the rope, he ties his son up, he lays him on the altar and he takes out his blade and just before he's about to make this sacrifice, an angel of the Lord appears and he says, Abraham, Abraham, do not lay a hand on that boy. Don't touch him. For now I know how fearlessly you fear God, that you wouldn't even withhold your precious son. And Abraham looks over and he sees a ram is caught in the thicket, in this bush. And God provides a ram as a sacrifice in place of Isaac. And the angel of the Lord says this again, and this is in verse 15. The angel of God spoke from heaven a second time to Abraham. I swear, God's sure word, because you have gone through with this and have not refused to give me your son, your dear, dear son, I'll bless you. Oh, how I'll bless you and I'll make sure that your children flourish like stars in the sky, like sands on the beaches, and your descendants will defeat their enemies. All nations on earth will find themselves blessed through your descendants because you obeyed me. Abraham was willing to give up the thing that was most precious to him, the symbol of God's blessing in his life, and God asked for it, and it's because of his willingness, God blessed him. Abraham knew that worship brings blessing, no matter the sacrifice, no matter the surrender. When we withhold nothing from God, God withholds nothing from us. And that's what worship is, It's going all in. God doesn't want your 90%. He wants everything. I don't even think God's so concerned about you checking your church box. He wants your entire life. Like Tara said, in Romans 12, it's everything. Everything that we do can be an act of worship. But if we wanna live lives of worship, we have to get comfortable with surrender and with sacrifice. But here's the great thing. God always honors what he asks you to give up. Every time. If God wants something from you, it's always good for you. Every time. As I wrap up, just wanna ask this question. Where could you be withholding something from God today? I think God can only bless an open hand. And I think that's what worship looks like. It's living completely surrendered. So where in your life could you be holding on to something that's keeping God from being able to bless you like you've never seen, like Abraham? For you, maybe it's your marriage. Like you're terrified of just letting God take control of your marriage and your situation. Maybe for you, it's finances. I know that can be super scary. For me, it's my future. I don't know what it is, but like I get terrified at surrendering my future to God. Whatever it is for you, I just, I wanna urge you surrender that thing to God. Go all in, go 100% surrender because it's when we open up our lives in worship all of it, that we posture ourselves for the blessing and the favor of God. Because when we withhold nothing from God, God withholds nothing from us. Worship is sacrifice, and it is surrender, but worship brings blessing every time. Amen.
4: Thank you, Brandon. So last year, I was in a store here in the Mount Pleasant area, and I was shopping, and I ran into a girl that I went to college with. And that's a big deal for me because I went to school in Virginia. And so all of my friends stayed in the Richmond, Northern Virginia area. And with the exception of my college roommate, I had not seen anyone from college in about 13 years. So we're standing there in the store, we're catching up, and she asked me, why did I move to Charleston? And I told her, I moved here for my job. And so she asked me where I worked. And I said, I work for my church. And the look on her face when I told her that I worked for my church, I I wish I had a camera and I had taken a picture of it, but I didn't. So I scoured the internet and found the closest thing to what she looked like, and it was this. (laughs) Complete and utter shock was the look on her face. And so when I think about that look, that look is a testament of why I worship. I worship because I've been forgiven much. And when I think about how much I've been forgiven, I think about a story that we find at the end of Luke chapter seven. Jesus is having dinner. He's at a Pharisee's house named Simon. And as they're having dinner, this woman comes in, and she's crying. And at some point in the meal, she finds herself on the floor at his feet. Her tears are falling on his feet. She's wiping his feet with her hair and her tears. She anoints his feet with oil. And the entire time this is going on, Simon the Pharisee is thinking in his head, if he were really a prophet, he would know that this is a sinful woman, and he wouldn't let her touch him. And Jesus hears his thoughts and responds to him out loud with a parable. And the parable is there are two men. They both borrowed money. One borrowed 500 denarii, and one borrowed 50 denarii. And so that that makes sense in our world, we need to step back and understand that one denarius is is worth about one day's wage. So think about where you work, how much you make an hour, what your salary is, and imagine that you've borrowed 500 days worth of wages, a little over a year's salary. That's what one man borrowed. And the other man borrowed 50 days worth of wages, close to two months' salary. And so Jesus says, the money lender forgave both of these men of their debt. And he asked him, which one do you think loves the moneylender more? And the Pharisee says, the one who had the most debt. And Jesus says, that's right, and he pulls back, and he says, this woman, she's been forgiven much, so she loves much. But those who have been forgiven little, they love little. And so I think about that story, and I imagine, what if we were there at the dinner? Who do you think you are? Are you the Pharisee, or are you the woman? Now, my natural inclination is to want to say that I'm the woman, but I wonder if most of the time I'm not the Pharisee. And I wonder that because we live in a society where we judge our sin in degrees on a continuum. And it's natural because that's how our society works. If you run a red light, you don't get the same punishment as someone who steals $10,000. If someone steals $10,000, they're not punished the same way as someone who takes a life. And so that's how our world works. And so we're conditioned to compare our sin to someone else and think that ours is less than theirs. And then I wonder, looking at that parable, if Jesus wasn't trying to point out that sins are different, but the weight of our sin. Because I think about the guy who borrowed 50 days worth of wages. That's a lot of money, but it's not so much that he didn't think in the back of his head that at some point, in his own power, he could have paid it back. But the man who borrowed 500 days worth of wages, that must have seemed hopeless to him. There was no way he was gonna pay that money back. And so his gratitude was because he understood the weight of his debt. And I wonder if we really understand the weight of our sin, no matter what it is. And so when I think about the parable, when I think about that woman at Jesus' feet, when I think about my friend looking at me in the store, we laugh at it. And I found that funny picture, but at the moment it stung a little bit because it reminded me of where I was but that sting turned to gratitude because it reminds me of who my God is and what he did for me. And so I always wanna be that woman at his feet pouring out all that I have and all that I am in worship of him. And so I worship because I've been forgiven much.
5: Thank you, Lynn. Thank you. Ah, uh, I worship because God Loves me. I think a simple way uh, to define worship is that worship is a result of how much you love God. So if you love God a lot, then you're gonna worship a lot. Not just at church, but in your everyday, ordinary circumstance. But if you love God a little, or maybe not at all, The result would be that you would worship God a little or maybe not at all. So how do we get to the place that we would say the words confidently that I love God, that I love God? I think it's that we need to realize how much God loves us. Because when you experience an extravagant, unconditional love. I believe it's just involuntary that you're gonna you love back when you experience a love so great. I've experienced it here on earth, and I married her. First time I experienced that in my life, and I was like, just unconditional. I just loved her back. You know, I think John three, 3 sixteen says it. Um, I think in, in the best way uh, says that for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, and that whoever would believe in him would have eternal life. Let me say it a little more simple. God loved you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross so that he never has to be separate from you, not while you're alive on earth and not eternally. See, John 3, 16, though, is one of those verses that is so culturally normal, uh, I I think it loses a little bit of the power that it holds. So when we hear it, it's like, oh, I've heard that verse. I know, I know. God loves me. But I think we need to take that verse and the power of it and move it from this camp over here that's on poster board at a sporting event, under Tim Tebow's eyes, maybe a refrigerator, on your uh, magnet on your refrigerator. Take that verse from over here and when we move it, over here to where it is a paradigm shifting, identity giving, why I would wake up in the morning and do anything, revelation, you will worship. Because you will realize, deep seated in your heart and in your spirit, that God loves you so much that he sent his only son to die on a cross so he never has to be apart from you while you are alive or eternally. I like to imagine that there was a conversation that went on in heaven, something like this. God calls to Jesus, he says, Jesus, son, come here, I need to have a conversation with you, we need to talk. He says, yes, Father. He says, son, there's this guy, his name's Nate, you know Nate, I love him so much. Listen, I never wanna be apart from him while he's alive on earth and I never wanna be apart from him eternally. So Jesus, would you do something for me? I would think he goes on to say, hey, there's this guy down there named Chris, this girl down there named Rhonda, this guy down there named Nick. I could name every single one of your names. And he said, Jesus, I don't ever wanna be apart from them, not while they are alive on earth and not eternally. So son, I need you to do something for me. Would you do it? What's Jesus say in the garden? Not my will, but yours be done. You see, when that settles in, that God loves you so much that he sent his only son, man, you don't need a beautiful sunset with this incredible mountain range in front of it to worship. It helps, but you don't need it. You don't need the latest, greatest worship song with a hooky melody and profound lyrics to worship. It helps, but you don't need it. You don't need to have your life in clean order because God had that conversation when we were at our worst. When God was there and his arms were open I know I've done it. And we said, no, thank you. Because he had that conversation even when that was our posture. But when John three sixteen settles in as this deep-seated heaven-to-heart revelation that he loves you, I man, you could be anywhere, anywhere. You could stop, you could close your eyes, you could feel the face of the Father look to you and say, son, daughter, I love you. And that we could turn our face back to him and we would say, God, I love you too. God, I love you too. And then you would confidently be able to say the words, I worship because God loves me. Bless you guys.
1: Wow. Five different perspectives, five different words. Would you help me appreciate our panel? Again, they did a great job. So we've heard from five people why they worship, Let me turn the question back to you. Why why do you worship? Why do you worship, and will you worship? I love the way that Nate summed it up. A real simple definition of worship, it's when, when I express my love back to God. And I wanna invite you as we kinda move towards concluding our time together to do that, to express your love back to God, and it's gonna look different for each and every one of us. I mentioned that we went to Israel, and it was a, about a 12, 13 day trip, and my wife went with me as well, and the night that we were leaving, my four year old daughter, Ellie, was just having a really hard time uh, with us going, and, and she was making it hard on her dad as well, and so I was putting her to bed, and she's crying, and I don't want you to go, and you know I wanna go with you, and just having this conversation, and, and as I turned to leave her, um, she says, Daddy, I don't like the promised land anymore. I don't like the promised land anymore. <laughs> just you know, rip your heart out. Gosh, I'm crying and, and and so we went and we come back home and uh, yesterday afternoon, we get home and we, we reunite with Ellie and she's crying but it's in a different sort of way. She's so happy that we're home and she wraps her arms and legs around us and she just hugs as hard as she can. And, and, uh, it, it, and just two totally different expressions. One of them in joy and one of them in sadness. But you know what's interesting about that is her dad. Both of those expressions communicated her love for me. Both of those expressions were precious to me. And I wanna invite you to express your love to your father today as we worship. And I don't know what that's gonna look like for you. For some of you, it's gonna be hard. And, and maybe you feel distance between you and God. Maybe there's pain that you're walking through right now and and your expression is gonna reflect that and it's gonna be honest and it's gonna be raw and it's gonna be precious to the Lord as he draws near to you. Others of you, maybe you're having a great week and things are going really well for you and as we approach Thanksgiving this week, it's gonna be an expression of gratitude of God. I'm so grateful. I love you so much and I'm so thankful for what you've done in my life and it's gonna be beautiful and it's gonna be, precious in the sight of God. You know, my prayer for us this weekend is that the five different perspectives of why I worship is gonna turn into about 15,000 expressions of worship back to God, that you would just say, God, I love you. And maybe for some of us, it's gonna be an act of sacrifice and of surrender, as Brandon talked about with the story of Abraham and Isaac, And, and it's gonna be releasing something that maybe we've held closely and, and allowing God to kind of uncover a new part of us or, or take hold of a new part of us. You know, for some of us, it might be um, like Lynn said, it's gonna be that Will Smith expression, <laughs> well, like what? Seriously, God, you, you've done that for me? You've forgiven me that much? And we're gonna reflect back to that place that God has delivered us out of. And for some of us, that may be a place that he delivers us out of today and we're gonna go, man, I have been forgiven so much, and I'm gonna give him everything I've got in worship. I will not worship like the Pharisee. I will worship like that woman who expresses and lays it all out to God. But I'd love for us to just turn this place into a place of worship that we would answer, why will I worship, and then we would do that together. Would you pray with me as we close? God, I'm I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful that uh, each of these panelists have been a vessel from you, from heaven. That Their voices have in our lives represented yours and you've spoken truth into our lives. You've spoken hope, you've spoken healing. And God, I just pray, Lord, now that uh, uh, just an atmosphere and an attitude of worship and of love and of reverence would sweep through this place as we worship you. As we say, so will I. God, that for those of us that are in a hard place, that we would, Lord, worship you out of that place. For those of us that are in a great place, that we would worship you out of that place. And as we do that, that you would do what your word says you will. You would literally inhabit the praises and the worship of your people. That you would deposit something in us, Lord, that would be transformational in our lives. We love you and we worship you in Jesus' name, amen.